0: I'm excited again to be with you this morning as we continue in our conversations uh, around the Gospels. Of course, this is our last week uh, focusing in on the Gospels in this class. And we're going to kind of jump through a lot of different things. Rather than a conclusion, because we spent the last four weeks in all the books, and the, the, f- the first week was kind of a broad overview of what the Gospels are all about. This week we're going to go and talk about... Uh, a grab bag of topics, um, and we'll see what those are uh, here just right now. So outline some questions to always ponder as we approach the Gospels. Re- oh. next, week? next week there is no, yeah, I was going to say at the end of class, but I uh, can say now too. Next week there is no Sunday school because it is Easter. Easter. And then the following week we are back and I am teaching again on Revelation for a few weeks because Reverend uh, Carrie Stuman is um, still in Florida having some medical uh, challenges. So we're, our prayers are with her as well as Zev. Um, so I'll be taking Revelation and then Lin- Reverend Linda Leon will be with you, which is be very exciting. So uh, as we conclude our discussions in the Gospels um, this morning, we'll talk about a handful of questions to always ponder, realizing that even if we are not talking about the Gospels on a weekly basis anymore in Sunday school, we still hear sermons on them almost every week. We still are reading them and hearing them. These are the stories that we live by, right? So we always have to engage in them. And when they start to get a little stale, when you think you know the story well enough that you don't, you start to tune out What do you need to do to re-engage? What questions do you need to start pondering? So we'll look at some of those. We'll talk about some images and symbols of the evangelists. You've seen these along the the way, but we'll really focus in on them. Talk about the development of the canon uh, in a conversation with apocryphal versus canonical gospels. We'll talk about the fourfold gospel or harmony Which is better, a harmony or the fourfold gospel and why? Uh, We'll talk about a fun thing called agrafa yesu, ipsissima vox, and ipsissima verba. If you don't know what those are, that's okay. You will in, in the next hour. Um, then we'll talk about uh, something really fascinating that's just blown me away this last uh, these last few months um, from N.T. Wright. We'll talk about some of his conclusions about exile and the Gospels. And then we'll end with a conversation on the historical Jesus. So we have a lot to cover this morning. But we'll zoom through it. And you have everything there in your packet. If I have to zoom through, um, you can revisit it. So... <coughs> I'm not going to read through all of these, except to say that there are always questions we can be pondering as we read the Gospels, or really any text, right? But for the Gospels in particular, knowing um, these types of questions, like who's the author, who's the audience, when was it written, what are some of the emphases, how does this particular Gospel writer, evangelist, refer to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? Do we see more of the divinity or humanity of Jesus emphasized? What's unique in this gospel? What's missing that we might expect, right? These are questions we've already started to answer in the last few weeks, but it's always good to keep those in mind. What is the structure of the gospel? And how would only having this gospel alter our faith? What would we be lacking from the others? What might be lost? What might be gained if we just focused in on this one um, and why must this gospel stay in the canon, right? These are some big questions, but once again, if if in your readings of the gospels, it starts to feel like, oh, I know this already, or oh, I, I, I can't stand to hear another sermon on that passage. I've heard 3,000 of them. Um, so try to figure out What new angle, right? One of our very first weeks back in September, there was that great phrase of the Torah. Torah is like a jewel. You turn it, and and every different facet, you see something new in it. I think the Gospels are the same way. So with each of these questions, and there are a thousand more, turn the story a little. Look at it from a different angle, and you will always get something new. So that three thousand and first sermon you hear, you'll learn something new right? We've seen these the last several weeks, but we've never had them all next to each other. These are the images of the evangelists as found in the Ethiopian Abba Garima. And as I said in the last several weeks, I'll say again, this is the earliest um, uh, pictorial representation of all four evangelists that we have in any way, in any form, right? All four of these appear in the same book, from somewhere between 330 and 650 AD. And here you've got Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. And we're just going to look at a few elements of these, right? You notice that um, Matthew and Luke are very similar, right? They stand on the same pedestal. They are wearing very similar clothing, but the beards and the coloring are a little different. Here, the background is both red, but then John and Mark are similar. The same border. They uh, he's they have the same similar pedestals, but he is seated. He is standing. So, what are some things that we can draw from these? What are some early thoughts? What are some thoughts from the early church about who the the gospel writers are? Well, Mark is different. Mark, um, I put, these are not the order that they appear, right? But I put them in this order because they're the order that we talked about them. But Mark is different. And for some reason they say, well, Matthew and Luke are very similar. um, And they visually represent that. And we know that because of the synoptic problem we've been discussing. But a few other things that are noteworthy. Here you have uh, Matthew, Luke, and John. And you notice that they've got something in their hands. What do we think that is? It's not a hard question. Anybody? Gospels? Is that what you said? These are the Gospels. Um, And we know this because there's a cross and there are little circles here which would have been jewels. And in the east, jeweled covers were only used on Gospel books, right? So we know that these are the evangelists. Uh, And that's what they're holding, We also uh, juxtapose um, Mark and John. Uh, we've already talked about those things, but they also both have something—a oh, new word for me. Uh, a amophor- That's i have never even heard it. Just seen it in this book alone. Uh, a bishop's white scarf. Um, they're both wearing one. If you get up really close and look at that, um, and. All of the the attire is fitting except Mark. Mark, for some reason, is is in classical, uh, it's anachronistic. It it would not have been the the clothing he would have worn, but some kind of a classical uh, attire. And John is wearing ecclesiastical dress consisting of a brown chasuble, uh, which was the robe worn by priests and bishops when they celebrated the Eucharist. So. Hmm? This? Ah, no. It's, yeah, it's hard to see, actually. I could have zoomed in on that, I guess. Uh, it's actually, the idea is that he's at his desk, and he's writing. So the other gospel writers are standing there with their book already finished, and for some reason Mark is there, and this is his desk, um, you know, the legs of the desk, the, the, and then this is the actual book. Good question. Yes. Sure. What's the question, Fred? Okay. Why doesn't John appear in the lectionary? Uh, no, I do. I certainly do believe that John appears. I, um I'd have to look at the whole, there are certainly days where John does appear um, in the lectionary text, but I'm not, quite frankly, I haven't, maybe, I don't know what was last, what was last Sunday, I don't know, look it up, Um, no, I do believe we read them all in the, in yeah, throughout the year, but they're they're organized in, in right. You're on a three year cycle, you have to organize them and and shake them up in different ways. So, um, but I do be- I certainly do believe we read from John, right? Yeah, last week was the uh, woman. It was John fourteen. Starting to come back to me. That's probably not. No, we read Lazarus in class last week, but in Sunday school it was the story of Mary excuse me, in service, it was a story of Mary washing Jesus' feet. Um, Anyhow, let's continue on with symbols of the evangelists, right? So these are just the, these are pictures, pictures that were drawn and probably painted of the evangelists. But then uh, in the West and in the rest of the church, you start to have these symbols, right? Where Matthew is associated with a human, Mark is associated with, Uh, where is he here, there he is, with a lion, Luke is with a calf, and John with an eagle. Does anyone know where this tradition comes from? Did we know all these? Is this totally new for all of us? We've heard some of these, totally new? Okay, so this is, um, because we have four Gospels, the early church was starting to say, hmm, how can we remember these? And uh, it, goes down, it goes back uh, to the ancient church. It actually predates our written accounts. By the time the written accounts come around, this is so well established that we, don't, we can't trace it back to the earliest person. Who did this? We just have no idea. Um, the oldest written account goes back to someone by the name of Victor- Victorinus, and Jerome picks it up um, and changes it some. Um, he says, Mark the Evangelist, who is the lion, right? Opening, um, yeah, he says, Mark the Evangelist opening thus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness as the image of a lion crying out, right? That crying out connected with the, the sound of the lion would make. And then John the Evangelist taking wing like an eagle discourses, Uh, that should be on, uh, the word of God. So, um, Victorinus had a certain order of these, but these come straight from scripture, Ezekiel and Revelation. Now, these are images of the four beasts, right, that are around the throne. They have certain traits, and they look like certain animals. And they said, oh, four beasts, four gospels. Uh, Okay, here we go. Let's figure out how they can be related to one another. Um and, yeah, I'm trying to summarize here because I know we've got a lot. Um, Augustine came around a little while later and said, These th- the three creatures, that is, the lion, the human, and the calf, are all earthbound creatures. That is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? All those are earthbound, but then, of course, you have this heaven bound this eagle this uh that is different right so as augustine says look at these these are all very similar in that they're earthbound matthew mark luke they are the synoptic gospels they look with the same eye but then john comes along and whoa he takes a very different view and so that's why we attribute the eagle to him and you can read there more on all those details Okay, we're going to jump along to discussion on um, canonization. So why did these Gospels survive as opposed to any others? We know, um, of course, that there are other apocryphal Gospels, and we'll talk about those in another moment here. There are other Gospels out there. The Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Peter, we know that these are out there, but we have only held on to an upheld four as canon, right, that we read from. And uh, Francis Watson, in his book, The Fourfold Gospel, um, reminds us of that. But he says that the fourfold collection is the work not just of the evangelists, but of the church. And what he means by that is that with all these possibilities out there, it was the church deciding through worship, which I find to be a, a really powerful testament to canon, is that in worship, we decided that this is what speaks to us. The Holy Spirit is using these texts and influencing our lives the most, and this is what we believe, we will hold firm to. And that is really um, at the heart of canonization. There's all, obviously a lot more to it, but... Um, that's really, really key. The church was, uh, as a whole, in worship and liturgy, was really helpful in canonization. Now we've talked about before the full New Testament canon as we have it was for the very first time listed in Athanasius's ninth festal thirty-ninth, uh, excuse me, festal letter um, for Easter in three sixty-seven uh, CE but we know that that was, that was kind of those books that weren't really like, oh, what do we do with this one? Like Revelation, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um, there, there were a few other books that were kind of a, um, questioned for a few hundred years, but really, the Gospels, for the most part, by the year 200, those were really the only Gospels most of the church read. And we'll talk about it in just a moment, uh, the infancy Gospel of James and epistle we 'll talk about a few of these other uh, apocryphal gospels oh i didn 't do this right i didn 't do the animations right on this one. okay, so ignore the right hand side pretend it 's not there for a moment. Um, have you ever heard that mother 's mary excuse me, Ma, mary 's mother 's name was Anna Has anyone ever heard this? okay has anyone ever heard that Mary rode a donkey to Bethlehem? Come on, you're all lying. I know you are. You've seen this. You've, you've thought this. Of course she rides a donkey, right? Have you ever heard that Joseph tried to find a midwife? Now this one, probably not. Doubtful. Jesus was born in a cave? Oh, a few, few more than I expected. Have you ever heard that time stood still when Jesus was born? That's a cool image, isn't it? Or that Mary is descended from King David? Or that Mary was a perpetual virgin? If you've heard any of those things, you have heard them because they appear in the Proto-Evangelium, also known as the Infancy Gospel of James. Have you ever read it? No? But you know the traditions from it. So uh, Bokmuel, who is uh, a, a book, I read this last year on ancient apocryphal gospels, he says quite unlike any other non-canonical work, this gospel, this infancy gospel has profoundly shaped how most Christians through this, that should be ages, through the ages and into the 21st century have understood and imagined the Christmas story, regardless of whether they have e- ever even heard of this text. Look in the Gospels, the infancy narratives of only Matthew and Luke, right? And we will see that none of these details appear, right? We don't know Mother Mary's mother's name. We have no idea that if she rode a donkey or walked, she probably would have actually walked um, because they pr- tradition would say that they were not wealthy enough to own a donkey, um, at least the canonical Gospel tradition. So all of those come from this... Um, this early non-canonical work. Not saying that they're wrong. We're not saying that. We're not drawing the line between non-canonical and canonical and saying, well, these are obviously right and those are obviously wrong. There is just the, as I said a moment ago, the church decided these are the most faithful witness that that we want to hold on to in worship. This is what will form us. And yet, um, this one kind of lived on and the traditions in it lived on. And there's a lot more. but those are the ones that most people have heard of. Also, another um, another work, Veronica. We've heard of Veronica's Veil? Vale. Anyone? It's one of the Stations of the Cross in the Catholic Church, right? Um, that tradition comes from another non-canonical uh, non- uh, work called the Acts of Pilate. So let's move on to talking about these apocryphal Gospels. So... Um, apocryphal gospels, uh, for the most part, they are expansionary and epiphenomenal. And that's a word I just learned from apocryphal gospels book. Um, But most are expansionary, meaning that they're secondary to the canonical gospels. We know this tradition, but there are some questions we have, and maybe we want to Investigate and see what we can find, and fill in the gaps. Or maybe we maybe we think we know, and we just fill in the gaps ourselves. There's this sense that um, uh, it's not it's it's yeah it it is telling the story that's untold. We've talked about before how the canonical gospel arc, at the very least in Mark, goes from baptism through to resurrection. But what happened before baptism, right? Matthew and Luke said, "Well, we've got to give something. We've got to give them something." But the other, some other non-canonical apocryphal gospel writers said, "We've got to give them more than that." Um, and so they, there are stories out there in the early, um, from the early apocryphal gospels, of Jesus being a, a schoolboy, having friends, doing miracles. Uh, making, making birds out of mud and clapping, and the birds come to life, right? These, we don't know that these stories are true or not. They don't appear in the Gospels, but they're there in the Apocryphal Gospels. And then this is one of the most fascinating things I've heard, um, is that we, we just established a moment ago, we just established that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the, the Gospels that the church said, these are the Gospels we'll hold on to. But then you've got this church, this community in uh, Rosas, and I'm going to read this to you before I put it up on there. Put it up there. Um, at some point around the beginning of the third century, Christians in um, a city, coastal city between Turkey and Syria, petitioned the bishop of nearby Antioch for permission to use a gospel, the Gospel of Peter in their public worship. And we don't actually have this whole gospel. We only know it, we don't know it in full yet. We may still find it, we don't know. Um, but we don't have the whole thing. We What we do know is that it talks about, it's a full-length gospel, similar to Matthew, in which Peter speaks in the first person, and there's a big focus on passion and resurrection. That's all we know. But this church, this community decided this informs our faith. This is transformative for us. And so they petitioned to use it. And the bishop um, of one of the major sees of the Eastern Mediterranean and a determined opponent of heresy had not read the text. But he was persuaded enough by the petitioner's arguments and it gave him permission to use it. So, um, yes, the four, only the four, but there's some wiggle room in various communities around Um, but yeah, so beyond the Gospels, there's also the sense um, that we need to fill in the gaps of the larger stories, or there's things that the Gospels aren't quite telling, but the Epistles know about. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 7, then Jesus appeared to James, this is talking about the post-resurrection, then Jesus appeared to James and to all the Apostles. Doesn't appear this this appearance to James does not appear at all in any of the gospels. So it's no surprise then that we get um, we get other gospels that say this is important. What happened when Jesus went to James? We all want those stories, right? I wish they were recorded in the non the, the canonical gospels because I want to know what is the tradition saying. I need more stories for Holy Week, more stories for Easter Tide. Well, the gospel according to the Hebrews comes along, which Jerome tells us about, and there's this narrative of the risen Jesus handing his burial shroud to the servant of the priest before appearing then to James, James the just, and breaking bread with him. So, there is this sense that once again there's a gap. We have a bit of a story, but we we need the rest. There's an expansion. This isn't changing, right? Epiphenomenal. It, it's not. It, it adds to it without changing the whole story, right? It's not like Jesus wasn't raised because of this story. No, no. This is just an expansion. It doesn't affect it, but it's filling in the gaps. And for the community in where James is the brother of Jesus is particularly prominent apostolic figure. This would be an important story to hold on to, right? Okay, we're jumping around a lot today, but we've got a lot of, I hope, interesting topics to consider and ponder. Next, we move on to a discussion of fourfold gospel or harmony. So, as we started this class on the gospels, um, I try to plant a seed that we, when we talk about the Gospels, we shouldn't just talk about them and think about them uh, as pictures of Jesus. But instead, we should think of them as portraits. And when we start thinking of them as portraits, we can say, well, yeah, any of those could be Jesus. A picture is, is hard to, to argue with. A portrait there's, there's the artist and his, you know, what tools are available to him. Um, what medium is he or she using? Uh, what does he want to portray? What does he want to emphasize? Those same things are present in the four Gospels. How do we um, portray, how do they portray Jesus? But with four, it can be a little confusing, because there are, there, there are some tensions, there are some differences in how they tell the story. The chronology is not what we want it to be. That's because we have different expectations of, of biographies. But these are ancient biographies. But still, there was someone, uh, early um, church father named Tatian, uh, who sought to combine and harmonize the four. Um, and so he wrote the Diatessaron, developed the Diatessaron, which we do not have the whole of it. We know that it existed, um, and the just, just means through the four. So as we understand it, it was one book that told the story of Jesus from birth through death and resurrection and ascension. One, not four, but one. However, if we stand on this tradition of considering the Gospels each as a portrait, is this appropriate to harmonize them? Now is is the time for some audience participation. What's lost when we cut and paste different accounts of the life of Jesus? What might be lost? What might be gained? Any thoughts? Do you want to turn to your neighbor for one minute and talk about it? Do that. One minute. Turn to your neighbor. So what answers have we come up with? Anyone? So again the question is what's lost in harmony if we cut and paste different accounts of Jesus? What might be lost? Point of view? Your own, Point of view. Your own thinking of what you maybe had conjured up. Okay. Would be influenced by that. Mm, oh, so, okay. So are you saying that Tatian, the one who developed the harmony, he is hem- too heavily influencing and cutting and pasting in a way only he would? Oh, that's an interesting point of view. Okay. Yeah. That's oh, that's what you agreed to. Okay, Rich? Yeah, I think you could lose accurate hmm, okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. You're harmon. You're 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 smoothing over everything. Yeah. So that's good. Um. On both both sides. Yeah. Rosie. Oh, right here. oh sure. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's and in that there is a a cultural difference and an understanding. But also, um, yeah, I grew up with white Jesus, right? We have white Jesus in the sanctuary all over the building, but Jesus was Middle Eastern, he was probably closer to black than white in our in our modern you know bichromatic system of black or white. He was probably in between um, and not not quite this european looking right so so in that coming back to Leanne's point of if Tatian were a lighter skinned person, and he had certain proclivities to, you know to, against or you know for or against certain things, he may have a bias and take cut and paste from certain places up, certain different, instead of others um, so yeah, this is my answer, but what you all kind of hit on if each evangelist writes with certain emphases and motives in mind, blending them together leads to a distortion. Um, and eventually, the Diatessaron was abandoned, and the fourfold gospel was embraced. Um, but here, we recognize each of these four portraits. But do we recognize those? That one as Jesus? Not quite. Not quite. And so, I am of the mind that while harmonies can be helpful, right? There's even the the story that came out probably within probably around eight ten years ago. Um, it tries to tell the very, you know, the, the bare bones, the basics of the whole Bible without the books, right? It's a harmony of the modern age, and it, it has a good purpose um, to tell the full story. But if that's the text upon which we base um, sermons and, and, and deep scripture study, um, I think it's a distortion like this. Okay. Now we're going to move on to Agrafa yesu, which are the unwritten sayings of Jesus. We talked about, of course, the Gospels um, say certain things, tell what Jesus said, right? But then you look in the rest of the New Testament, and there are some things that we are surprised to find. Over in Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, that sounds like Jesus, right? It sounds like Jesus. It only appears in Acts doesn't appear in the Gospels. Um, And scholars looking at those other apocryphal Gospels, they say they may uh, preserve other agrafa. Like over in uh, 2nd Clement, it's it's not just because it appears once. It's because it appears numerous times, and it sounds like Jesus. There's something... Very um, uncanny in certain certain writings and certain quotes that appear in these apocryphal texts. So there's a dialogue with Peter in which Jesus encourages the disciples to be as sheep, even in the midst of ravenous wolves. We could hear Jesus saying that, right? If if you woke up today or tomorrow and there was another chapter in your Bible, you didn't know it wasn't there, and you read that, you'd be like, Yeah, that sounds like Jesus. Okay, cool. Um and then over in Clement, but also in Gospel of Thomas, we have this strange enigmatic statement about the kingdom will come when the two will be one, and the outside like the inside, and the male with the female will be neither male nor female. I don't know what that means, but it, I, I, you know, if Jesus doesn't explain a lot of his parables, I wouldn't have known what they meant either, right? So uh, it sounds like the first half of a parable, the first half of something that Unfortunately, we don't get a good explanation of what it means. Um, From other early writings, so this is, remember that there's this oral tradition. Yes, we have a written tradition, but we also have this oral tradition. People who knew Jesus, and not every single word that he spoke was recorded, but people could say, yeah, I remember when he said that. I remember when he told this story. Yeah, we didn't write it down, but everybody knows it. Well, we don't know them anymore. Um, but we can imagine that some of these appear as sayings of Jesus that were never recorded in the Gospels. Here's one from early, early church fathers, uh, like, My mystery is for me, and the children of my house. Ask for the big things, and the small things will be given to you as well. Um, and again, these sound like something we could expect Jesus to say. They're not the words we have in the Gospels, but we could expect them to expect Jesus said these. And there are many more. These are just a handful. Um, But what's helpful is to remember that the Gospels, um, they preserve a certain part of the story. They have certain motives and emphases in mind. They're, They're not seeking to be comprehensive. They don't want to record every single word that Jesus ever said. That's not their point. Yeah, Nancy? Mm-hmm. But, it's been, but the meaning of that word has been distorted. Absolutely. Like, this is the story, and that's all there is, and this is it. Absolutely, there's a whole lot more to it. There's a whole lot more to it. Um, I want to come back to something that we uh, looked at way back in September, um, talking about how do we approach any topic, right? We can approach it from a big so from a macro point of view, what is its place in the world? Right, the Gospels. How do they relate to the other other any other written texts of the same era? Other Gospels, and we can go all the way down to individual words and phrases. So we did that. Um, we talked about potential phrases, right? That Jesus may have spoken. Um. As we consider words, the words of Jesus, something, and this is, so I, I'm trying to bring two different things together here. I'm trying to say that we can study the Gospels from the, the macro point of view all the way down to the micro, but even within that, there are certain w- places we can go, right? So it's, again, that the, like the Torah is a jewel that we turn around and, and every facet we learn something new. Same with the Gospels. And I heard this for the very first time in seminary class, and I thought, that professor is crazy. There's no way that's true. Um, but I've been won over. So um, if, you, if you think I'm crazy at first, give me another minute. Um, so <clears throat> we only know a few of the exact words and phrases Jesus ever spoke. A few. A handful. What? Because he spoke Aramaic. Aramaic. New Testament was written into Greek and some of the words that he spoke were transliterated into the Greek. Now you'll say, but, but they were translated. They were translated. Yes, we've talked about in this class that any translation is already interpretation. Not saying that we can't get back to the words of Jesus, but what I am saying is that we only know a few of the exact words that Jesus spoke. Those are talitha kum, from Mark 5. Ephatha, Abba, Raka, Mammon, Eli, Eli, Lamaxabach Right? So Jesus speaks this from the cross, right? So this is little girl, get up, may your uh, be opened. Father, this is like a uh, crazy, stupid person. Um, and Mammon is money, and then. Eli, Eli, or Eloy Eloi, whichever one you take. Lamak sabachthani is an Aramaic, Aramaic um, paraphrase of Psalm 22, um, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? It speaks it from the cross. Those are the only words we have of Jesus. The exact words. Ipsissima verba. Now, Ipsissima is kind of what we were leaning into a few moments ago. We were talking about the agrafa yesu, which were um, the very voice. Things that we can imagine Jesus saying, right? Because we have all of this uh, this base, this foundation within the Gospels. Um, and Ipsissima describes this um, view that the New Testament Gospel accounts capture the concepts Jesus expressed, but not the exact words. Ipsissima vox is... Uh, then contrasted with ipsissima verba, the very words. These are the only words that we have that Jesus spoke. Do you think I'm crazy yet? Nobody's walking out? Now, what is its importance? It just, it helps to helps us to recognize that there is some distance. Because with all translation, right, one of the biggest things I hear from um, non-believers is that they try to say the bible is just it was translated again and again and again and so you can't trust it and i'm i don't i'm not saying that and i'm not affirming that here instead i'm saying we need to be honest with what we've got and there is some distance between the aramaic jesus spoke and the greek into which it was translated is there so much distance that there's distortion i don't think so but there's distance and so when we know that we can claim that then we can have a, a, a coherent and, and full conversation with someone who says, well, the Bible can't be trusted. It was translated again and again and again. No, we have all these manuscripts. We have a good base text. We know what the the Greek and the Hebrew said. And yeah, there's a few parts that are a little unclear. And when you come to a conversation when someone's totally thrown out the Bible and you say, yeah, there's, it's complicated. And they're like, whoa. It's not just you know there it is and I'm going to accept whatever it says. Be- when you come to a conversation like that, I find it's it's helpful um, to admit, yeah, there are some challenges here, and then you can have a dialogue rather than, but it's the word of God and everything in there. You know, well what's the base text? What's the, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not going there, but I'm with you. I'm we. <laughs> We can go out for coffee and, have, and talk about that another day. Okay, now thinking back to that um, that upside down, tr- well that triangle, it's still a triangle, not upside down triangle, it's a triangle. Um, thinking back to the macro versus the micro, right there in the middle there, um, when you start thinking about overarching narratives, the meta-narrative of scripture, this is one of the, uh, a hard book, but a good book. It's about 180, 200 pages long. Um, And N.T. Wright, who is a uh, New Testament scholar, he wrote this particularly for laymen. It's still hard, let me warn you, but it will blow your mind as it blew mine. And he references a lot thicker, you know, he's written four or five other thick, thick books, and this is kind of his summary of everything he talks about in there. So it's worth getting. But he talks about... When we read the Gospels, there's a meta narrative that we aren't really clued into that we should be, and when I read this, it was like someone took that jewel of Torah right that we're talking about and if, and flung it up in the air and just hit like and and hit it with a light and just whew, everything is alighted in a new way entirely because of this, and we've got to remember back to the exile. So um, the people of Israel, this is. They built the temple, and around 590 um, B.C., uh, the temple is the residence of God, right? And the Holy of Holies is there. But then, um, there is a destruction of the temple. People are taken out into exile. And the question is never really addressed in the text, the holy text of the Hebrew Bible. Where does God go when the temple is destroyed? where does god go the text does not say um and so nt Wright, and he's not the only person who who uh holds to this idea by the way which is important because uh, if you were i would say this is bogus right he's not the only one who believes this right there's um so they're exiled for about 70-ish years and then the people are let uh are allowed to come back right so there's this geographic return and eventually the new temple is rebuilt but something's going on. There's no uh, theophanic procession back, right? God doesn't appear, right? Remember when God, uh, God led the Israelites through the wilderness onto the promised land, there was a pillar of cloud by day to protect from the sun, a pillar of fire by night to, keep, to light the way. Uh, we don't have that. We don't have that in this story. So uh, where is God. And this is directly quotes from uh, Challenge of Jesus. Uh, Wright uh, says, "At no point do we hear Yahweh has. Uh, I don't know what that, that notion up not there. At no point do we hear that Yahweh has gloriously returned to Zion. At no point is the house again filled with a cloud that veils His glory. At no point is the rebuilt temple universally hailed as a true restored shrine, spoken of by Ezekiel." No new festivals invented? We know the Jews loved the festivals, right? They had so many of them, I can't even keep them all straight. But you think this would be a big one, right? We're back, the temple's here. There's nothing. There's no new temple saying um, this is a new era. And at, at no point either is there a final decisive victory over Israel's enemies or an establishment of a universally welcomed royal dynasty. We're not going back to King David Something is not quite right. We're back, but we're not quite back. So, if that's the case, if the the second temple isn't quite the same as the first temple, then we have to start thinking about how Jesus tells the story of God. How does he relate the story? And he talks about the story of the kingdom in such a way to indicate Israel's long, long exile was finally coming to a close. Because if God didn't come back into the second temple, when did God come back to the people? In Jesus. That's right. So this is the moment. This is the theophany. This is the point where where God makes himself known in Jesus. They had to wait a long time. They built the temple, and then God didn't come back. in, In the same way that he did back in the promised land. Instead, God comes back in Jesus. That could be part of the reason why Jesus says, I'm the new temple, right? Forget about the temple, right? Um, there, and there are lots of stories that Wright goes into. He talks about um, the prodigal son can be read as a story of exile, right? You were away, but now you're back, right? Um, and there are several stories that he contextualizes with this narrative cipher. Um, but in celebrating the Passover at Last Supper, the words Jesus spoke suggest he was trying to evoke that whole Exodus tradition indicating the hope of Israel would now come true in and through his own death. So Jesus' death must be seen within the context of a larger story, Yahweh's redemption of Israel. More specifically, Wright uh, continues to say, it would be the central climactic moment toward which that story had been moving. And those who shared the meal with him were the people of the renewed covenant, the people who received The, quote, forgiveness of sins, that is the end of exile. So I quoted this a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm I'm in a sermon. I don't even remember which one now. Um, It it was the Draw the Circle Wide, the one where I finished with a song. That forgiveness of sins and healing both in Wright's book and in all of his writings, um, rather than just being... um, a way to make people clean, both spiritually and physically. Instead, it's a way to say, we're back. We're back together. You thought that we were still in exile, but guess what? I am here. We are back together, and I don't want anyone excluded. So forgiveness of sins and healing both is a way of bringing people back fully from exile. Yeah, they're physically there, but they're not fully back. I'm going to stop for a moment because I know we've got our last big topic coming up next. So I'm going to actually pause here for a few minutes and see, are you totally overwhelmed? Uh, Do we have any questions about this? I don't know. I don't, yeah right so it, it's it's hard to know I mean obviously the uh the Jewish tradition is that the second temple is where God was. God was present there just as he was in the first, but the scriptures don't really attest to that as clearly as we as they and we would probably like so n t. Wright and others like him would say, well, if God's not really back something else is going on. We're still in exile. God's still not back. Say that last part again. By some of the Jews, right? I mean, his disciples were Jews. So, um, yeah, there's certainly that tension there. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions on this, Rich? What of them? Well, I'm just wondering, you know, if he came to complete Israel, mm-hmm. that doesn't preclude a bigger mission, but it does seem to focus on the Jewish nation. Absolutely. So the the mission of Jesus is certainly focused on the Jewish nation. Um, and it's only really, there are few glimpses into how Jesus um, has ministry to the Gentiles, or to the non, you know, to the those who are not in the core of the Jewish community. So the Samaritans are not really in the core of this, the Jewish community. Um, and yeah, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in John 4. He heals Jairus' daughter. Jairus is probably a Gentile. Um, and there are senses that this mission is going beyond, right? Um, In Jesus' day, in his own lifetime, his mission was totally focused, though, for the most part, except for a few exceptions on the ministry to the Jews. It was only after, right, that the disciples went unto all the nations, yeah? But but first, Israel had to be reconstituted. Israel, if this is the... um, this is God's covenant people. This is the chosen people of God. They have to be made whole and brought back together before then the mission could go out. Yeah. Good question. You'd have to call them and find out. I'm not a Jew. I think there is still a sense that the Messiah is that Messiah is coming. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we when we had um, the class, uh, the, the Jewish Confirmation class, come back in December, and they needed a Christianity 101, we were talking with Rabbi Spitzer and, and uh, their teacher, uh, Ellen Schenkel, and we, we came to an interesting place of agreement. And, and uh, I'll never forget what, what she said. And she said, well, is it possible that your second coming will be our first coming? And I said, "Oh. Okay. I've never thought of that before. Well, um, they don't have the problem of Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean I still think even today, right, uh that, that that I mean we have to make a distinction between the modern state of Israel and the Jews. Um and there's so much history between there we can't say that there's total continuity, right? The Jewish nation is is not that old. Um that is the Jewish nation of Israel. Um but is there an expectation is the expectation of a Messiah today what the expectation was back then? Perhaps? Um, because as history attests, the Jewish, those who are Jewish are oppressed again and again and again throughout history. Um, and so if I were oppressed that way, yeah, I want someone to fight for me. Um, and so Jesus doesn't quite make sense, if that's what you expect. Yeah? Okay, we're moving on to our last topic of discussion, which is the historical Jesus and this can be uh, a dirty phrase in some churches. Um, but the idea is that <clears throat> if, we, if we know and re- recognize that each of the four Gospels, the four witnesses, have a particular emphasis, a motivation in telling their story, can we, by comparing them, not harmonizing them, but comparing them, get behind those motivations, get behind their chronology, And by using some critical historical methods, um, can we reconstruct the life and teachings of Jesus? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do we get back to the historical Jesus over and against the theological Christ? So that um, the early, the evangelists had, had, they had a belief in who Jesus was, and with those decades of reflection, they said, "Well, yeah, Jesus was X, Y, and Z." And then they also have this; um, their, their theology further develops, and so they see everything in a new light, right? Maybe they have a new, a new meta narrative cipher, and that's how they read everything now. But that may be not, it may not be how they read it initially, and that maybe not how they understood it initially. And so in the last 200 plus years, there have been various um, differing eras or quests to search for the historical Jesus. We're going to zoom through these. They're there for your reference. Um, Here's one modern scholar who I I like to read, Marcus Borg, uh, meeting Jesus again for the first time. And I should say, when I say I like to read him, I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with a, a, most of a, most a, I don't agree with anything everything anyone says, right? Um, but but some of his stuff is quite good. So I'm actually gonna skip this. It's good stuff. Um, yep, gonna skip it. So there have been various quests trying to figure out if we had to say Just in a little word or phrase, who is Jesus and what is he really big about? What would we say? Well, uh, Marcus Borg would see Jesus as a Jewish mystic, some charismatic spirit person who was intent on revitalizing Israel. John Dominic Crossan uh, views Jesus as a radical peasant who rebelled against political and religious authorities. Okay, is that, is that Jesus? Is that the Jesus we see? That's what he sees. John Meyer, um, in a great series called Mar- uh, Jesus the Marginal Jew, um, says that Jesus is a Jewish teacher who by circumstance and choice lived always on the margins of society. Um, speaking and acting in ways, I love this, that make him, made him appear obnoxious, dangerous, or suspicious to everyone. When you think about it for a second, if I'm a Pharisee, Yeah, that that describes Jesus pretty well. Um, E.P. Sanders, another uh, historical Jesus um, fellow, says Jesus is an eschatological prophet. He loves to talk about the end times. He always um, talks about them, and that is his mission, announcing a great future event that was about to take place. And then N.T. Wright describes Jesus as one who believes his vocation was to enact what Scripture said God would do, and he views himself as a prophet and the Messiah, understanding his destiny as symbolizing that of Israel. So this is just a small selection. Historical Jesus is, um, as I said, it's a controversial field because you might say, well, we've got the Gospels, just go there. If you want to know who Jesus is, go there. But they're portraits. We want a picture. How do you get a picture? That's harder to do. These uh, these people in the historical Jesus quest of the last two hundred years have said portraits are great. What did Jesus really look like? You know, this person says he's got a big nose. This one's got got a small nose. Well, there's more small noses than big noses. Maybe he had a, a small nose. You know, or maybe he had a big nose. Right? He probably had a big nose. We don't know. Um, but. That is, that is the purpose of the historical Jesus. And I'll leave you, going back to N.T. Wright's challenge of Jesus, I'll leave you with one more uh, thought here. He says, Look what happens, Ernst Caseman said in a famous lecture in 1953, when the church abandons the quest for Jesus. The non-questing years between the wars, so World War I, World War II, there, was not, it was, there were non-questing years in his mind. They created a vacuum in which non-historical Jesuses were offered, legitimizing Nazi ideology. And uh, Wright says, I would go so far as to suggest that, and this is the important part, whenever the church forgets its call to engage in the task of understanding more and more fully who Jesus was, idolatry and ideology lie close at hand. To renounce the quest because you don't like what the historians have come up with so far is not a solution. So, this is by, see, he talks about casemen here, and then this is, the rest of it is N.T. Wright, at page 21 in Challenge of Jesus. Yeah. Um, if our life as Christians is to be little Christ's, right? That's what Christians mean. Christian means. If our goal is to be little Christians, little images of Christ, we should seek to know Christ fully. And that is one aspect of what historic, the historical Jesus uh, is all about. Who is Christ? What is Christ all about? And so um, that is my prayer for us all. At, at the conclusion of our Gospels class, that we may always have at the forefront of our hearts and of our uh, vision for what we want in our own christian walk and for the church that we always look after christ we always seek to find him and that uh, he may be the guiding force and that we may never lose sight of our lord and savior jesus christ amen